Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. I want to share with you this morning what might be the worst worship service that ever happened. And it turns out that the the speaker that morning was Jesus. And the story is told in Luke chapter 4. Jesus came to Nazareth, his hometown, where he had been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Jesus and he unrolled the scroll and he reads it to them. Okay, Jesus reads the scroll of Isaiah and then we read that he rolled the scroll back up. He gave it to somebody, he gave it to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of everybody in the synagogue were fixed on him. And Jesus began by saying to the people, Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. So at that point, the listeners in the room, they start to speak to one another. And there's interaction about this message that Jesus has just shared. And Luke tells us that they were all speaking well of him. And they were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. And yet they said, so some people are asking now, isn't this Joseph's son? So there's a bit of a shift in Jesus' teaching, now he's been he's being questioned and, and sort of challenged. And so now he needs to respond and, and answer them. And he's like, you guys, what what Isaiah just said, you know, like that was that's about me. I'm I'm the one that Isaiah was talking about. Like that's a huge boom, just like mic drop, and there's chaos. The room erupts, there's anger, and the place empties. And they, they take Jesus out of, the, out of the room and up a hill to try and throw him off of a cliff. Okay, so this, this church service ends in attempted murder. And, and, you know, I've preached some rough sermons in my day. I've never, nobody has ever tried to kill me afterwards. And, and this is an important story, but you're like, why did, what does this have to do with the Corinthians? Well, in this story, Jesus... He, he announces in a, in a way that he's the Messiah. So that's one of the things that, that happens here. At the same time, this story gives us a bit of an insight into how the synagogue works. Like it gives us an insight into what the synagogue leaders do. And, and the elders in the room, they have a pretty important job. But the elders in this case, in, in this synagogue, they let things get out of control. So there's an, there was an old scholar, his name was Alfred Edersheim. And he was an expert in Jewish synagogue worship. And he wrote on uh, what was going on in the synagogues in this period. What Alfred Edersheim said is, there are the elders. These are the rulers or shepherds. All the rulers of the synagogue were duly examined as to their knowledge and ordained to the office. Their choice depended on the congregation. So the synagogue elders, they pick the speakers. They sit up front. They evaluate what's being said. And if they do their job, then there is order in the service. People have worshipped and, and learned and God has been glorified. And, and I would just want to say, I wouldn't try to understand 1 Corinthians 14 without that background. Now, on the face of it, this passage says some hard things about women. And, and this is the second message 
on the subject. The part, the first part was on April 25th, where we studied 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You, if you haven't heard that message already, you can check it out online at Anchor FM. We've got a, a, a podcast there. So think of this as part two of that message of women in church ministry. Now, if we today were divided over how to use, how to do speaking in tongues correctly, or if we couldn't figure out how to do prophecy well, then I would suggest that we spend this morning talking about those. My hunch is, is that's not the biggest question that we're wrestling with today, but my hunch is that what, we, what we're wrestling with is what Paul says in verses 33 to 35, where he says, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should be silent in the churches For they're not permitted to speak, but are to submit themselves, as the law also says. If they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, since it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. So, my aim this morning, just to be totally clear, my aim is to show that silent, in verse 34 there, doesn't mean what a lot of people think it means. Now, to get there, there's five questions we need to ask. Five important questions we need to ask. First is, Why are we still having this conversation? Number two, uh, what is Paul saying yes and no to in this passage? Number three, what if I'm wrong? Number four, what else is there? And then number five, what does this look like for us in Benediction Church? All right, so those are are the questions I want to wrestle with this morning. You have my word. I will be as honest and as faithful to these texts as I know how to be. If I don't know something... I'm not going to pretend that I do. And I'm only going to say as much this morning as I believe I can defend from Scripture. All that I ask from you in return is you just hear me out. Okay? I'm asking that you hear me out. Uh, Just like last time, I'm asking that you just reserve judgment and just uh, don't stop listening until we finish this study. And I think that we'll be glad uh, that we did. Just to be clear, this isn't my favorite subject to, to teach on, but I think we need to. And I actually think if we do, there's some really cool beautiful things that are uncovered. But the first question I want us to talk about here is, why are we still having this conversation? Why, why is this still a conversation we need to have? And one reason is because of stereotypes. Because stereotypes are still a thing. One uh, outspoken complimentarian guy uh, a little while ago named Owen Strachan, dude tweets, men today are often soft, weak, passive, unprotective, but physical discipline is key for men. Hear Paul, I batter my body and make it my slave. Christic manhood is protective, sharp, watchful. The man who is willfully soft physically is often soft spiritually. I don't know about you, I would hate to be the guy who left Owen Strachan's office five minutes before he said that. The problem is that Paul has not made a comment about gender in that verse. And what Owen Strachan is doing is he's, he's shared a stereotype about what manhood or Christic manhood is supposed to look, look like. And, and to be honest, I wouldn't care because I know that that's out there. I wouldn't care except I, my hunch is that's not just an idea. Like that doesn't, that's not just somebody's doctrine. I believe that that probably works itself out in all kinds of ways. And one of the ways that it worked out is that, in, that some of Owen Strachan's homies when a book came out recently called Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood by an author named Amy Bird, a bunch of Owen Strachan's followers decided that they needed to comment on, on Amy Bird. And so like they assumed that her book was an attack on 
what they believe about uh, about manhood. And so there was this online thread where they commented on Amy Bird's her character and on her marriage and even on her appearance. And none of them had read the book. But they thought they could, you know, they thought that because this this online thread was uh, was anonymous, this was a place for them to share their views on on Amy Bird. And it's all stereotypes. It's not okay. It's definitely not, you know, Christic manhood. If I'm honest, I feel this too. I feel the stereotypes, and I I wrestle with this myself. Uh, I know that this isn't a good argument, but the idea of women teachers still makes me feel. Un, like uncomfortable like I feel it in my chest when I think about it okay like I, I just I feel uncomfortable about it because of my experience and because of time that I've spent in certain kinds of churches and the thing is as I listen to Christian women share their stories it's like oh a man feels uncomfortable with us like we make you feel uncomfortable that's really cute hey can I can I tell you what it's like to be us and, and that's something that I'm, I'm learning about. And my point here is that traditions and stereotypes aren't helping. They're not helping. And that's why we need to have this conversation. Another reason we need to have this conversation is because of biblicism. Biblicism. I don't know if that's a familiar term for you, but there is a difference between understanding scripture and being a biblicist. Now, that same author I mentioned earlier, Amy Bird, she writes that biblicists rightly uphold the authority of Scripture, but they often read the Bible with a narrow, flat lens of interpretation, zooming in on the words and the text themselves while missing the history, context, and the confessing tradition of the faith. Amy Bird says that biblicist readers become their own authority since they often don't notice they are also looking through their own lens of preconceived theological assumptions. I think that is so, so true. And an important point that we've made a few times as we've gone through this series is the importance of context. It's, it's recognizing that like we only have half of the conversation. Like In other words, we're, we have, we've said this before. We are reading somebody else's email. And a little bit of history will, will help us understand. And so at this point... The gospel has spread from Jerusalem and is spreading to the Gentiles and Christian worship is evolving. Okay? It's it's borrow it's beginning to borrow less and less from the synagogue tradition and it's creating some new traditions. And then in the midst of it, boom, here's Pentecost. And and Pentecost changes everything. Like it's it's a total game changer. Now everybody has the same Holy Spirit. Now everybody is a priest. Everyone is a minister. Like everyone's an evangelist. And and everybody has their own unique gifts that the Holy Spirit has equipped them with. And they're supposed to go out and use their gifts and share them as the as they spread the gospel. And we're like, well, what what difference does that make? What difference does Pentecost make in all of this? Well, this this history makes a big difference. Suppose Paul wrote a letter to Victorian England, okay? And suppose that in Paul's letter to Victorian England, Paul said, I do not permit a woman to drive. Like it is disgraceful for a woman to drive. Well, the, the biblicist makes a rule based on the word drive and concludes, uh, well, no woman should drive any kind of vehicle. No cars, boats, vans, buses. It doesn't matter 
that Paul's in Paul's letter, drive meant controlling a team of four or six horses. He wasn't talking about a vehicle with power steering, but that doesn't matter. And in the same way, a biblicist looks at 1 Corinthians 14 and feels really confident making a rule that no woman may speak in church on Sundays because the Bible says so. And so that's why we're having this conversation, because biblicism. Another reason I think we need to have this conversation is because of the gospel. I actually believe the gospel is at stake here, and I don't mean what you think I mean. I want you to listen to how a few prominent complementarians talk about the importance of complementarianism. So one is a, is a pastor named Mark Dever from Washington, D.C. He says, of course, there are issues more central to the gospel than gender issues. However, there may be no way the authority of Scripture is being undermined more quickly or more thoroughly in our day than through the hermeneutics or of egalitarian readings of the Bible. In other words, he's saying that the way that an egalitarian reads the Bible is actually undermining the authority of Scripture. Another we could look at is, is Ligon Duncan, who is a, a president of a seminary in the U.S. He says the denial of complementarianism undermines the church's practical embrace of the authority of Scripture. Or how about John Piper, who says one reason Jesus came was to overcome Adam's failure and cause men to own the special burden to care for women. He also says, if you aren't willing to stand against the tide on this issue of complementarianism, you're probably going to cave on some other important ones that may be closer to the gospel. Some important issue that might be closer to the gospel. You'll cave on that if you don't stand against the tide. Or Don Carson. Don Carson says that uh, egalitarianism doesn't feel like trembling at the word of God. It feels like ways of domesticating it, and that has massive repercussions down the road. He says, I think it's that serious. And we could go on and on and on with other examples and speakers, but this is the slippery slope argument. And they're not just saying that complementarians are the only ones who take the Bible seriously, although, although they are saying that, and that's a problem. I think that's wrong. And, and they're not only saying that complementarianism protects the gospel, although they are saying that, and, and I also think that that's a problem. But they're saying that restoring biblical womanhood and manhood is something that Jesus died for. Like, it's a part of the gospel. Like, Jesus is on the cross, dying and suffering and bleeding, and one of the reasons he's there is, be, is so that someday we can figure out how to be better men and women. Like, how to live out this Christic manhood thing. And I'm like, Really? Just to be clear, it's not just complementarians who are saying things like this. I'm not going to quote them here, but you don't have to search very long in egalitarian circles to find talks and blog posts and articles that make a similar point. And, and more than a handful of them end usually with some young person who comes to this discovery and decides like, oh, so God is cool with women pastors after all. Wow, like I could worship a God like that. And I'm like, well, you wouldn't, you wouldn't otherwise? Like, like this, is, this is what makes him good? Really? My point is, gender isn't part of the gospel. Gender roles isn't part of the gospel, but there are leaders and people, writers on, on all sides who have made it so. And that's why we need to talk about this. So, so let's do it. Let's get into 1 Corinthians 14. 
Because the question here is, what is Paul saying yes and no to? Okay, what's Paul saying yes and no to? Uh, to I think it'll be helpful to reintroduce uh, our Corinthian friends, Adonis and Penelope, who we met in chapter 11. Um, and I said, <clears throat> I said last time that they grew up serving in the temple of Aphrodite. They were best friends. They became followers of Jesus together. They got married together. They, and and in, in chapter 11, Paul was correcting them about head coverings. What I didn't say in chapter 11 is that it turns out Adonis has the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues and Penelope has the gift of prophecy. Okay? And, and women, as we saw in chapter 11, they have the gift of prophecy. Paul assumes that women are praying and prophesying in the gathering of the church. And, and everybody in the room wants to speak in tongues. Everybody wants to prophesy. And these two can, because they've got the gift. So what should it look like? Well, here's where Paul spells it out, what, what tongues and prophesy, prophecy are for. So he says, and I'm going to pick it up in verse 22 here. Speaking in tongues then is intended as a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church assembles together and all are speaking in tongues and people who are outsiders or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all are prophesying, and some unbeliever or outsider comes in. He is convicted by all and is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart will be revealed, and as a result, he will fall face down and worship God, proclaiming, God is really among you. So I think it's really interesting that Paul assumes this is a mixed crowd, like not just men and women in the same room, but people of different cultures, people speaking different languages, people who are followers of Jesus and those who are not yet followers of Jesus. Like even right there, I think that's a really important point. It is normal for there to be unbelievers in the room when the church gathers. We could do an entire sermon just on that. But as it applies to tongues and and prophecy, when Paul's saying here, when Adonis does his thing and speaks speaks in tongues, that's a sign for unbelievers. It's a sign for unbelievers. Like, so, so just to sort of illustrate how that might work. Uh, here is, uh, here's Wu from Beijing. Okay. And he's, he's in Corinth in order to do some business. If everybody in the church is speaking in tongues, it's chaos. And if everybody's speaking Greek, Wu still can't understand. But there is a moment when the elders might ask uh, during the worship service, if there's anybody who has a message in another tongue or in another language, and, and Adonis might stand up and he, would, he might burst out in Mandarin, and Wu is amazed. Because Wu has heard the gospel now in his own language, and, and that's a sign to him. And then a little bit later, when the elders ask if, if uh, anybody has a, a word of prophecy, well, then it's Penelope's turn. And she, if she has something that she feels compelled to share from the Lord, she's going to stand up. And when she and the other prophets share their prophecies, Paul says, the secrets of the unbeliever's heart will be revealed. He'll fall face down and worship God. In other words, when, when Adonis and Penelope use their gift properly, when this order happens, God is worshipped and people meet Jesus. Like, that's huge. And, and, and that's why Paul says, in verse 26, whenever you 
come together. Each one has a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything is to be done for building up. Everything is to be done for building up. Like that's the purpose of the gifts. To, to, not to divide the church, not so that they would compete, but that they would be built up. And the whole rest of this chapter, the rest of this chapter is instructions for how that's supposed to happen. So here's what he says about speaking in tongues. So this gift has two parts. Okay? For tongues to happen correctly, it requires two different gifts. There are those who speak in tongues and there are those who interpret it. And Paul's like, all right, you guys, you ready? So Adonis, the rest of you tongue speakers, let two or three people speak in tongues. And then when you're asked, verse 27, let someone interpret. So I want you to notice if it's not Adonis's turn or if there's no interpreter, the tongue speaker is supposed to keep silent, verse 28. So there's a control on tongues that if there's no interpreter, if it's not your turn, Paul wants you to be silent. And prophecy works the same way. Because here's what he says about prophecy. Just like with tongues, there are two parts to the practice of this gift. There is the sharing of the prophetic message, and then there is the evaluating of the prophecy. You with me? So the first part is the sharing of the prophecy. Paul says, verse 31, I want you to go ahead, prophets, one by one, share your prophecy so that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged. You see that? The result of prophecy is that the church may learn and be encouraged. So prophecy teaches, prophecy encourages. You see that? So suppose while Penelope is is sharing her prophecy, a more like a fresher revelation comes and like, you know, Sister Leah or Sister Hannah or like Sister Esther, get this new word of revelation, well, then it's their turn. And so they should stand up and Penelope should be silent, Paul says. Now, then, at that point, then it's time for this evaluating to happen. All right? There's some, some of your versions say they use language like weighing or judging or discerning the message. Now, who does this? This isn't a separate spiritual gift, like in the gift of tongues, but this is the job of the elders. Like just like in Luke chapter 4 and in other passages, it's the elders who interact with Penelope's prophecy. They ask her questions. They discuss it. And, and their goal is to discern if the prophecy is, is like legit, if it's true, if it's from God. And, if, and, and so when they're done their part, they're like, wow, God has spoken to us through Sister Penelope. And it's at this point, it's during this part where Paul says women are to be silent. This is when women are to be silent, as I understand it. So just to be clear, my best answer to the question, what is Paul saying no to, is this. Paul says no to women evaluating the prophetic teaching. Like that's, that seems to be the elder's job. Okay. Now, I want to look at this for a minute and just go, like, how could this be what Paul is saying? Is this actually what he's saying? And I think that there are some reasons why Paul takes this position, why he takes this view. The first reason he, he, he takes this view is because this is the practice in all the churches. In verse 33, he says that. So this, this has nothing to do with the Corinthian women themselves, per se. This, Paul, Paul is not punishing Penelope. He's not punishing the women of Corinth. This restriction 
is apparently the pattern for all the churches of the saints. He also says that this is what it says in the law. This is what the law also says. Like, this isn't Paul's opinion. He's not inserting his own, you know, patriarchal view here. But this is what the law says. Now, most scholars and commentators who, who I came across in, in my study here, they think this is probably a reference to creation. But to be honest, I don't know. Because Paul doesn't say which part of the law he's referring to. So I don't know which part of the law says this. But I don't need to, actually, because Paul does. Paul knows what he's talking about. And so Paul, the point is Paul's restriction is rooted in what the law says. Okay, And a third reason we, we, I think we can't ignore this is because, because Paul says in verse 35 that this thing that he's trying to forbid is disgraceful. It's disgraceful, for, it's disgraceful for women to speak in church in this time. I know how that sounds. And some of your versions say that it is shameful or it is improper. And this is what Paul has already said back in chapter 11 when he was talking about women whose heads are shaved. Or when men who have long hair, like... It is improper. Like it's, it's, it is, uh, it's not to be done. And so Penelope is not to join the elders and judge her own prophecy. Like that's, that's a no. That would be disgraceful, as I understand it. And instead, what Paul's saying is that Penelope and the other women at this point should be silent and should be in submission. Now, almost as though Paul hears and expects objections to that point, He says in verses 36 and 37, Did the word of God originate from you or did it come to you only? Like if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should recognize that what I write to you is the Lord's command. Like Paul knows what he's talking about. And if we, it seems to me like he's saying, if you guys, if you're listening to the same spirit I am, then you're going to recognize that what I'm talking about, what I'm saying here comes from the Lord. And so I actually like the way that an author named Claire Smith uh, summarizes Paul's instruction here. Claire Smith says that the evaluation of prophecies was an authoritative activity that determined what was to be learned by the congregation. While women were able to prophesy, they were not to take part in this authoritative activity, but were to be in submission. Okay. I also agree with the way that Kathy Keller uh, sums this up. She, She writes to her church in Manhattan. She says, In a nutshell, our position is this. Whatever a non-ordained male can do in the church, a woman can do. We do not believe that 1 Timothy 2 or 1 Corinthians 14 precludes women teaching teaching the Bible to men or speaking publicly. Thus, women at Redeemer will be free to use all the gifts privately and publicly. There are no restrictions on ministry at all. There is a restriction on the office of elder. So, Summing this part up, when the Corinthians have finished their worship service, just a few questions here. Does Paul want Adonis and Penelope to have used their gifts? Yes, he does. Does does Paul allow Adonis to be a one-man show and hog the mic? No. Does Paul want women to be silent? Yes, at some point, everybody's supposed to be silent. There are turns where everybody's supposed to be silent. Does Paul want Penelope to teach and encourage the church? Yes, he does. Now, to me, that's a big deal. 
Like, I, I don't think Paul has actually said anything particularly new here. This is already the pattern that was at work in the synagogue, but now it's different. And, and women here, it seems to me, are being liberated to use their gifts, and it preserves God's design. So it's kind of, it's both like countercultural and it's ancient. And I think that's really cool. Now, the third question we need to deal with is what if I'm wrong? I acknowledge I may be wrong in what I've said here. And I'll save you the trouble of objecting because if I'm wrong, it's, it's for one of probably three reasons. One reason I could be wrong is if Paul only meant to silence a few chatty Corinthian women. Like if that was his goal was to silence Corinthian women who were chatting in church, then I'm wrong in my interpretation of this. By the way, that is the predominant interpretation among egalitarian scholars um, and, and, and it's certainly possible, certainly possible. It's just that I see no evidence in, here or in history that it's only women who are doing the chatting and not men. And so suppose like I was a teacher in your, of your kid's class and everybody's chatting during class. And if I say, you guys, you're way too noisy, like girls, be silent. Like we wouldn't tolerate that. That wouldn't be fair. We wouldn't be okay with that. At the same time, if Paul's problem is he needs to silence only a few of the women, which some people suggest too, is the problem is that it's just just not all women, but a few of the women are, are chatting. It seems to me unfair that he's, he's silencing all women. Like that's not better. That's not a better solution. That's not a better explanation of what's going on here. But I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Also, I'm wrong if, uh, um, if a sermon is a very different thing than a prophecy. All right. If a sermon is a very different thing than a prophecy, then I'm wrong in what I've said. Now, most complementarians say that women can't teach from the pulpit because it has a different authority than either a Sunday school lesson or a Bible study or a tweet or a blog post or something like that. And I get that. Like, I appreciate those distinctions. I just can't defend them biblically. You with me? Like, I get it. I get the distinctions between those things. I just don't think, I, I just can't defend biblically that there, is a, that there is a difference in authority between what I'm doing right now and what Heather did 30 minutes ago. I can't defend that biblically. I grant that there is a nuance in that prophecy was tended to be more spontaneous, but I think that the result is the same. People have heard from God. They've learned something. They were encouraged the speaker has, has shared their message in reliance on the Spirit. The, the people who have heard the message have been called to repent and to believe the good news. And so, I don't know. Like, I agree with, I agree with Thabiti and Yabwila. He says, however you define prophecy, there's no escaping that the content teaches or else it could not edify and that women prophesy in the early New Testament assembly. Distinctions between prepared sermons and spontaneous utterances, though plausible, don't really solve the gender problem. So I agree with him that the distinction between a sermon and a prophecy doesn't really solve the gender problem. It seems to me that what Paul calls prophecy is essentially the same thing that we call sermons. And, what, and, and, and Paul said yes to women doing that, but most complementarians say no. And I think that that's probably a mistake, but I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Okay. Now, third way, the third way that I could be wrong is if 
all gender-based distinctions are now overturned because of the gospel. Like, if because of the gospel, there are now no distinctions between what men and women can do in the church because of the gospel, then, of course, I am wrong. And there are many who would say that, that because, that in light of the cross, in light of the new covenant, in light of the coming kingdom, in light of, you know, where we're going to spend eternity and what we'll be doing there, in light of the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost, that now there are, should be no gender-based distinctions. And, and that is certainly possible. It's just that, if that's true, then it's in spite of what is said by the Apostle Paul. Like this passage and almost all of the New Testament gender texts are written by Paul. And just so we're clear, there is nobody who understood or who loved the gospel more than Paul. Nobody got it or understood it better than Paul, except maybe Jesus himself. But, but Paul is the guy who wrote, Paul's the guy who wrote Romans and, and first and second Corinthians and, and, and like a, a third of the New Testament. Paul's the guy with scars on his body because of how his teaching was received in all of these different towns. I don't accept that Paul was careless in his speech or that Paul was like, was a misogynist. I don't, I don't accept that. Uh, I believe that Paul chose his words very carefully. And I think that his gender distinctions don't contradict the gospel. But I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Um, I don't think that I'm wrong. And, and here's why. Okay, we need to talk about what else there is. What else is there? You see, as, as I understand it, we actually face two problems. Christian patriarchy is one and Christian feminism is the other. Now, Christian feminism has said we are, we're all equal and God is too good to make gender distinctions. And so every, now we know that everything that we once thought was a man's work, a woman can do. And so get out there, women. We can do it. Let's show the men. And I'm just like, women, how tiring is that? How, how many women, how many women like go into maybe like full-time ministry or other traditionally like male roles in order to prove themselves and in order to prove their worth as women? Like that's a thing, right? That's a thing. Now, I could be wrong, but it seems to me feminism hasn't, uh, hasn't kept its promises and lifted the burden off of women. It seems to me, if anything, Christian feminism has like added to the burden. And Christian patriarchy isn't better. Like these guys say that the main problem in the world is a lack of manliness. And it seems to me in our pulpits, in, in our Christian books, and in our blogs and coalitions, they are full of like anxious, insecure, trauma, traumatized dudes trying to prove themselves to their dads, to the bullies who picked on them when they were kids, trying to prove themselves maybe to their wives, trying to prove themselves to other pastors, prove themselves to God. And I'm like, how's that going for us? Gosh, how's that going for us? And it's like, what else is there? Well, the gospel says, Galatians 3.28, there is now no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. Like, gender isn't our main identity. Gender is a thing, but it's like way down the list. 
And, and like, I've got to be honest, I've been at this thing long enough to know a few people on both sides of this debate who are super insecure and super anxious because even though they have Jesus, even though they believe the gospel, they're still trying to unlock some next stage of Christianity or some ideal of manhood and womanhood. As though, the, as though what they have in the gospel isn't enough. And I just want us to know, whether you are a man or a woman, your ideal is Jesus. Our ideal is Jesus. Let that hit us, all right? Like Jesus didn't die to make us better men and women. He, he died to make us his. He died to make us like him. And, and everything that we need for flourishing in this world and in the next, we have through Jesus. We have it in Christ through the gospel. And so we can rest you know what I mean? Like we can rest from all this like leveling up we're trying to do by becoming the ideal man and the ideal woman. I just think that's super good news. That's super good news. And so I want to close by asking, what does this look like for us at Benediction Church? Like what does this mean for us? So one option that's before us is we could just sort of like rewrite the whole thing and change up our worship so that we've got a bunch of songs and a bunch of prayers and a bunch of tongues and a bunch of prophecy and a bunch of messages and a full meal. And that could be really fun. We could, we could have a really good time of that. Every morning that we spend together would be about three, three and a half hours long. But it'd be a lot of fun. Some of you are like, yeah, let's do it. I will just say a couple of things here in closing, though. And, and this just is straight out of our, our bylaws as a church or like our constitution. We are... We are probably the most egalitarian-looking church in our denomination while still preserving a gender distinction for elders. That what that means is that we are we are uh, probably we're too conservative for a lot of egalitarians, and we are way too liberal for a lot of complementarians. And to be honest, I'm not losing a lot of sleep over that. Okay, like I feel okay about that. Our our decision makers in the church are the leadership team, and that's David and Jordan, and Emily, and Matt. So they are our board. That's our board. And and that role is open to any man and woman who is a member. And one of the roles of our leadership team is to oversee Sunday teaching, and to make sure that it's happening, and to make sure that there's a plan, like a teaching plan, that goes at least a few months out. So that's, that's part of their job. And the spiritual leaders of our church are our servant team. That's David and Jordan, and myself. And we that, those are the elders, okay? And those are men who are chosen by the church and trained and set apart for that role, okay? When, when, when there's a Sunday message that's shared by somebody who isn't me, usually somebody from the servant team, myself and, and, and uh, other, others, uh, other elders, will give feedback to that teacher to thank them for what they've done and give them some feedback about the message, what, what worked, what they could work on next time. Um, but everybody's receiving feedback. There's weighing and evaluating happening. And so far, we haven't had a woman teacher on a Sunday. We've had women being interviewed and stuff. But if or when we ever do that, it's going to be at the invitation and under the authority of our elders and the board. All right? Now, let me get real honest with you for a minute. A few weeks ago, we had an impromptu elders meeting because, because Mike was kind of discouraged. I, I needed some, some accountability. I was feeling discouraged about the kind of the job that I'm doing during COVID. 
And what I shared with the elders at the time was like, I, I feel like I'm failing us. Like I, I just, I feel like I can't seem to follow through on any of our decisions and any of my plans. And like, maybe we should be doing what other churches are doing because they're doing a better job. And I shared that with them. So in this elder meeting, they pushed back and they're like, why are you taking this on yourself? Like everybody feels this way. Who doesn't feel this way right now? And like, who are these other churches that you think are doing such a great job right now? Like their pushback was like, what you are saying isn't true. This is not from God. You're being, you're like, you're being too hard on yourself and you are ignoring all of the good things that God is doing among us in this time and you need to stop it. And in other words, they pastored me. They shepherded me and they did a a really good job. They were right. And it was hard for me to hear those things. I'm sure it was hard for them to say those things, but it was so important and it was so true and it was pure gospel. I don't know if it was Christic manhood, all right? But like it was, it was Christ-like. It was Christ-like and it was prophetic. And, and there are things that I don't get right in, in my role. And I think that there are areas where as a church, I think we are still improving and still learning. But, um, but under that kind of leadership, I know that I can thrive and my family can thrive and I think all of us can thrive and flourish. And that matters to me a lot. Labels don't matter very much to me at all. Labels matter very little. But as as we grow as a church, I don't want it to be because people joined us because they agree uh, with us on our position on gender roles. I don't want that to be the only reason people join us. I want our neighbors and our friends and our family to come into our homes and into our spaces and into our ministry environments and be so overwhelmed with how we love and with our holiness and with our unity that it's going to be for them like it was in Corinth with people falling face down and proclaiming God is really among you. Like, don't you want that? Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.